the book of Psalms. This evening, Psalm 128 in our journey through the Scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them and get their attention and they'll be happy to get a Bible into your hands so you can hear the Word of God and read it as well, allowing it to have the full impact that God wants it to have in His mercy upon our lives. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you this evening. Psalm 128 is the ninth psalm of ascent. The pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims, would be singing to the Lord as they'd make their way from all around the world to come to Jerusalem, and the temple there, the tabernacle before it, in order to worship the Lord. And in this uh, Psalm 128, you can just imagine here as they come from all over the world, and in Jesus' time they said that the, it was estimated that the city of Jerusalem would end up having a population of well over a million people. There's a lot of people. So you're making your way toward Jerusalem. The closer you get to it, the more you see congregation, congregations of families and people coming from their villages and their cities and the density and the more and more people that you would be seeing. And one of the things that you would be seeing evidence before you would be all of these families coming to worship the Lord. And then here in, in, the, uh, uh, in the course of seeing all of that, there would be this great praise and thanksgiving directed to the Lord for the kind of family that the fear of the Lord produces. And so Psalm 128 is a psalm about the blessings of the God-fearing home. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His, that is, in God's ways. The fear of the Lord is a wonderful thing. I don't know quite how to put it into words. I don't know in all of the things that I've been read for decades now as a Christian that anyone can quite put it into words, but I think that any Christian that's filled with the Holy Spirit has a sense of what it is. The fear of the Lord is just this deep, deep respect for God reverence for Him, for who He is, for what He is. And there is, out of that deep respect and fear of God, a very, very, very strong desire to bless Him and to please Him, not to hurt Him in any way. I think about the Lord, and I know you feel the same way. He's my Savior. He's my Shepherd. I know him as a friend. Jesus calls me his friend, and he is my friend. And I know as deeply as I've ever experienced, I don't know what anybody else's experience is with God. I'm sure people have gone far deeper than me. But I know him very, very deeply as a friend. And yet in all of that, I still fear him. I still have a deep, deep respect for the Lord. And somehow all of that comes together, knowing Him as our Savior, knowing Him as the lover of our soul, knowing Him as our friend. And then it, and then it needs to all be coupled with a great fear of God for the relationship and, and the 
intimacy of relationship with him to be everything that God wants it to be and we need it to be in our lives. And it's necessary, all of it coming together, to produce a healthy spiritual child in the same way that it's needed to occur in a physical family to produce a healthy child from childhood to adult life to prepare them for living as an adult in this world. As you raise godly children in the world, the Christian home should be one of, of course, great warmth, great joy, a great confidence in the love uh, of the parents for the child. The child should always have that. should be great intimacy between the children and the parents. But the child also needs to possess a very, very deep respect for the parent and the parent's authority and the parent's responsibility. Without those two things coming together, then a home is never going to be what God wants it to be, and a child will never grow the way that a child needs to grow. And again, the same thing is true of us spiritually as children of God. And we notice what the fear of the Lord will look like. Someone says, well, how do I know that I fear the Lord? What is a characteristic of it? Well, the psalmist gives us the single greatest characteristic of the person who fears the Lord in verse 1. He says, who walks in his ways. Obedience. Obedience to his word. That is the single greatest mark of the fear of the Lord in a child of God. That they possess that in their relationship with the Lord. The one who walks in his ways. Then he begins to list the blessings of the fear uh, of the Lord beginning in verse 2. And there are many blessings. Again, he's looking at families coming together. He's looking at fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, all of this making their way into Jerusalem. And he begins to think as, as here a pilgrim is coming from um, one part of uh, the world to come to Jerusalem, and when he sees the children that are the product of being raised in the things of the Lord and in the fear of the Lord in comparison to what the world produces in terms of children, there was just great praise and thanksgiving to the Lord for that. Some of you may come uh, to church on uh, Sundays or really any day of the week, it doesn't matter, and you come from a part of town or you come from a town or an apartment complex or a neighborhood or whatever, and you see the children that the world is producing. And then you come to a church and then you see the children, the beauty of the freedom and the joy and the life and the holiness and all that is in a child that's being raised in the things of the Lord. And I'll take and produce a song in your heart of praise to the Lord for the kind of different kind of child that the fear of the Lord produces. So he's thinking about all of these blessings. And one of the blessings of the man who fears the Lord is that he'll be blessed in his labor. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy and it shall be well with you. So he's going to look at the blessings of the fear of the Lord from the vantage point of a man. A woman can, because you're brighter than us, you can take and translate that over into your world. And uh, there is overlap in all of it. But one of the things that the fear of the Lord will produce 
in a man who is also, in any man, but one who is also a husband and also a father, is that it will always produce a hard worker. It will always produce a hard worker. And hard work doesn't always, but virtually always, it translates into being able to make a living, put food on the table. There's something wonderful that happens in the heart of a man when he sits down at the dinner table in his home and he sees that his wife and his family are being fed from the food that he has worked hard all day or all week in order to earn the money to buy that. And so the first characteristic of the man who fears the Lord is that he will be uh, blessed in his labor. God will honor his labor and uh, bless him. He says concerning uh, the second uh, great blessing is your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house. The man who fears the Lord, in other words, is a blessing to his wife. I wish I could say all husbands were a blessing to their wives, but it's not true. I wish I could say all wives are a blessing to their husbands, but it's not true. But a man who fears the Lord and loves the Lord and honors the Lord and obeys the Lord will always be a blessing to a godly wife. She will count herself rich. No matter what she has or she doesn't have, if she has a man, a husband, who fears the Lord. And that's one of the great things when in a marriage when both the husband and the wife fear the Lord in other words, the wife has a husband that she can respect and the husband has a wife uh, that he can respect. And what a f- wonderful dynamic that is. And it's one of the blessings of uh, the fear of the Lord. And then it moves on to the children. Your children like olive plants all around your table. Now, olive trees, that was a blessing. It was the source of, of oil, it was, uh, both for lamps, for light, also for food, olive oil. And uh, so here the children, uh, they are a blessing in that kind of a household. And the man who fears the Lord, in other words, is a blessing to his children. Again, they're likened to these young olive plants that are sprouting up all around the table. One of the interesting things about olive trees is when they get very, very old, pretty soon you'll see an olive a tree begin to branch off a shoot off of the roots somewhere. And so the tree kind of, uh, you know, propagates itself and multiplies itself in that kind of a way. And it's kind of the picture here is of this great old olive tree go- growing older, decaying. This is called life. <laughs> and yet all around this man who fears the Lord as he is growing older, all uh, from the ground, all around his life, there are new olive plants that are rising up, product of the older tree, and each of them owing their existence to the older tree. And in the same way, the parent that raises their children in the fear of the Lord will have left behind them a model of the blessings of the fear of the Lord uh, in their children and their grandchildren, now to be lived out by their children and by their grandchildren. And it's the fear of the Lord that makes us a blessing to our children supremely. They don't know it during certain phases of their childhood and maybe even phases of their adult life. But if they ever come to their senses, and some of them never lose their senses, and we're thankful for those as well, But they realize that the fear of the Lord in a parent is a blessing. 
And it's one of the greatest, surely the greatest thing that we can pass on to our children, greater than any wealth that we can pass on to them or material things or any kind of a secular education or opportunity. Those are all wonderful things to pass on to a child. But the greatest thing we can give our children is to raise them in the fear of the Lord and for that to be mark our lives as men and as women. And then he goes on to say, Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. In verse 5, he talks about the blessing that a man who fears the Lord is to his city, to his nation. The Lord bless you out of Zion, and may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. And so the man who fears the Lord, not only a blessing to his family, but a blessing to his nation, a blessing to his city and to his neighborhood and to his uh, world. Whether they recognize it or not, it's true. The fact of the matter is the future blessing of any nation is bound up in the strength of the family unit and bound up in the strength of marriages. And the strongest bond of marriage is a mutual love for God and a mutual respect and reverence and fear over the Lord. And uh, that is the strength of any nation. And this is a man who looks not only at his family, but here is the pilgrim looking at Jerusalem and saying, not only are these families wonderful, not only are they blessed, but they are the blessing of this nation, those that fear the Lord. Now, when I was a younger, I won't say a younger man, I would say when I was a boy, people would talk about a person being a God-fearing man. I, don't, I never hear it anymore. I just simply never hear the phrase anymore. But it was a relatively common phrase in my youth. And it was a complimentary term. And somebody said, that's a God-fearing man. And you knew that was a good thing. You'd watch him for a while, see what he'd do. Thunder come out of his fingertips or what, you know, we didn't know quite what was the deal on that. At least I didn't at the time. But it was complimentary. We knew it was something to be respected. And today, of course, anybody that is called a God-fearing man now is, it's a label that's put on someone that they're out of touch with reality. They're a part of an old generation, the old way. They're unenlightened in terms of the new way of doing things, all of this. And as a result of the changing of the definitions, we see the chaos that is in families and then always, again, moves from the families into society and then affects an entire nation. It's a complimentary thing to be a God-fearing man. And a God-fearing woman. That's a wonderful thing to have put on a tombstone, ultimately. And there's a lot of blessings that are uh, found in all of that. And so this prayer that he makes here, the Lord bless you out of Zion. May you see the good of Jerusalem all the days uh, of your life. Uh, There is that recognition that here is the strength of a nation. Here is the strength of of a city. The strength of the family unit and the strength of the family unit is the fear uh, of the Lord. And so we read the Psalm 128 and say, isn't that wonderful about the pilgrims of the children of Israel uh, heading into Jerusalem? But the fact of the matter is for us as Christians, we can have and we're called to have this very same influence in our own family and in our own
own city and in our own nation and in our own world. And it is the fear of the Lord that all of this flows from. And then in verse 6, yes, may you see your children's children. In other words, the fear of the Lord generally leads to a longer life. Not always, but it generally does. A respect for God, a reverence for God, the obeying of God's Word, it keeps us out of so many circumstances and so much trouble that will shorten a life due to sin. And so here is that recognition that, uh, that there is long life, generally speaking, bound up in the life of the man or the woman who fears the Lord. Then we come to Psalm 129, and it's a psalm that... Uh, remembers Israel's past affliction at the hands of her enemies. And then uh, with that remembrance is a call for the Lord to uh, for a future judgment upon uh, her enemies. So again, this is a, a psalm of ascent. The children of Israel are coming together. And we remember, uh, again, that for some uh, Jews, depending on where they were in the world, this was the only time of peace the only time they escaped persecution in the whole year was when they came to these feasts in Jerusalem to worship the Lord in the same way that there are many Christians whose life is such, whether in their marriage or, or in their workplace or what neighborhood, whatever it might be, that it is only in an environment like this of church that they escape persecution and hardship and are able to uh, rejoice in the things of the Lord and escape all of that for some period of time. The psalmist writes and says, Many a time they have afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Many a time they have afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed on my back. Now that's pretty graphic imagery, isn't it? Think about somebody taking a plow out and going right up your back. The plowers plowed on my back. They made their furrows long. And so here is the description of the affliction of Israel, the affliction of the righteous in the world. He said, from my youth, this has been our experience. The Jews have suffered persecution uh, from almost the very beginning of God making them a people and then making them uh, a nation, right from the beginning of their existence. And when it talks about plowers plowing on my back, that imagery speaks of uh, the ultimate kind of persecution or suffering, the ultimate affliction being meted out uh, upon them. Again, you imagine a plow opening up the flesh of a person's uh, back, just brutal, heartless persecution. And then there's the Lord's protection. There's the recognition that, yes, we have been uh, persecuted, but the fact that we uh, continue to exist is an evidence of the Lord's protection. The Lord is righteous, verse 4. He has cut in pieces the cords of the wicked. And so the Lord cut the cords that were used to attach the oxen to the plow so they could no longer continue their work of persecution. And, uh, and the reason the psalmist recognized that they hadn't been successful in the destruction of the Jews or the destruction of the righteous was because of the Lord. Think about it in terms of human history. Think about how many waves of evil have arisen throughout history. 
And we, obviously we think of Hitler and the Nazis in the last century. But you know, Stalin, I forget how many, was it 60, 90 million? Mao, approaching it easily, 100 million people he killed with his insane policies. And you just see this evil that repeats itself over and over again. And then the persecution, you think of Islam today, the persecution of Christians and all of this that goes on. You say, why in the world hasn't wickedness been able to rise up as it's attempted to do over and over again and finally snuff out righteousness, to snuff out good, uh, to completely destroy God's people and silence their voice? Why does it all, evil always go to a certain point and then there is a backlash against it and the world returns to righteousness and to doing good again and then enjoying the prosperity of that, then evil getting a foothold in that prosperity to begin the cycle all over again. And the reason that evil has not been able to prevail is very simply that God has not allowed it uh, to, to prevail. It's all because of God's activity in human history. And so the Bible teaches that the righteous will always suffer persecution in this fallen world. Uh, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, the Bible says. But the Bible also teaches just as forcibly that evil will never prevail uh, in this world. The future is with the righteous. It is not with the wicked. Now, in the light of all of this persecution, his prayer to the Lord is that the Lord would judge those who hate Zion or they hate God's people. Verse 5, let all those who hate Zion be put to shame and turned back. Let them be as the grass on the housetops which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor he who binds sheaves his arms. Neither let those who pass by them say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. And so his prayer is, is that the evil would be uh, made to, uh, to become ashamed of their persecution of the righteous and the good, and that they would be turned back. And then he speaks of the fact that he prays that they would become so uh, withered, so completely as to no longer be found, that God would ultimately deal with them uh, so decisively that there'd be no hope of, of their recovery to do evil ever again. That day's coming. It's called the thousand-year reign of Christ, the millennium, thousand years of perfect Peace, the thousand-year reign of Christ. He prayed in verse 8 that no one would greet them with God bless you. The wicked, those that persecute the righteous, no one should ever say God bless you to them because no one should ask God's blessing on someone who is persecuting the righteous. It's interesting in the New Testament that we're told concerning those that go house to house uh, bringing false doctrine that we are not to let them in our house because we don't want them to come in. Maybe we can if we invited them into our house, say Mormons or Jehovah Witnesses. We could sit them down at a table. We could discuss the Scriptures with them, show them why we believe that what we believe and why the Bible t uh, shows that what they teach is erroneous. 
but we never ever want to have young ears somewhere in the house that we don't think are listening be confused by the false doctrine that's taught. So we don't invite them into our house. And the Bible says that when they leave, we can be cordial, we can be polite as one human being to another, but we never say, excuse me, Godspeed or God bless you to them because what they're doing is even more destructive than those who persecute people physically because what they're doing is leading people astray spiritually and the implications are eternal. So there's not to be a blessing on anyone that is doing evil uh, or, or, or doing wicked. And so beautiful Psalm 129 that just reveals to us as, as we read it how much the assembly of God's people in the house of the Lord uh, provided them with a break from persecution and the ongoing regular hardship uh, of their life. Then we come to Psalm 130, beautiful psalm, an encouragement to watch and wait for God's answers to our prayers. We lift them up. If I don't see the answer in five seconds, I'm done. Because it takes a little more patience than that, doesn't it? Because there's the right person, the right place, the right time. So we lift up a prayer request to the Lord. And if the Lord doesn't answer that prayer in a way that we know that He will in accordance with His Word, if He doesn't do that immediately, we recognize that He will do it in the future because there must be a better time for fulfilling that promise than at the very moment that I ask it of Him, though I may be desperate at the moment uh, for Him to, uh, you know, take this off of my plate and give me deliverance. And so the trial that the psalmist is in, very, very deep trial. He said, out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. He's drowning. He's drowning in his circumstance. You ever drowned? You ever come near to... You haven't, you're here. But you ever come near to drowning? I almost drowned one time. Somebody saved me out of that pool. I mean, you're completely overwhelmed in the circumstance. You have no power to fight the water. You have no power to rescue yourself. You're in a complete panic, and you believe that you're going to die, which you would if somebody didn't rescue you. Now, that's a hard trial, but that's real. I think most of us will probably experience some season, whether short or long, of that in our lives if we live long enough to experience it. And it's a hard thing to be in a circumstance tonight where we are in the circumstance and we say, God, I am drowning under the weight of this circumstance. I will not survive it if you don't deliver me. And maybe you're in that kind of a circumstance tonight. Some divorce, not of your making. Some health report. Some pink slip. Or shutting down the offices or the downsizing. It's a tough place to be in. 
And Psalm 130 is a beautiful psalm of instruction for when we find ourselves in that kind of place. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord, was the first activity that the psalmist had when he found himself in this circumstance. He immediately began to pray to the Lord. I, I, I hope that none of us are in a place where we find ourselves in that kind of a circumstance and we haven't thought to pray yet. <laughs> but sometimes this can be new to Christianity. We can be new to the Bible. That's a new thing for you tonight, to know that this is the first thing a person needs to do, is I need to get into contact with the only one who is greater than my circumstance, and I can do that through prayer right now. And to begin to pray. And it's interesting sometimes how a prayer life can be neglected for a time and then when a hardship comes into our life it will push us back into the beauty of prayer, the necessity of prayer, move us back into fervency of prayer where it's not just something that's coming out of our mouth and you know, getting that knocked out before we begin the day. But this prayer is coming from the depth of our being and the depth of our, our spirit. And so he takes and he begins to lift all of this up to the Lord. Lord, hear my voice. I mean, again, the circumstance is so hard. God, please hear me. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, oh, Lord, who could stand? But there's forgiveness with you that you may be feared. And so he prays to the Lord for deliverance. And then what happens to us so often when we're in that kind of a circumstance? Well, who am I to ask God for deliverance? I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner. I'm less than perfect. And so how can I have confidence in the depth of a trial like that that I can lift up a prayer to God and that He will listen and that he will care about that prayer. How can I have that confidence? We have that confidence in the knowledge that the God that we pray to forgives iniquity. He is eager to forgive sin. He loves to forgive sin. When we approach God, it, we approach a God where we have the wonderful knowledge and understanding that He is a God who is a forgiving God. The devil will try and condemn us away. You're going to start to pray to God now when you haven't prayed in days or weeks or months and now all of a sudden you think you're going to get the hotline to God. Not going to happen. You aren't walking as close to God as you ought to, and now in this fix you're going to think you can just lift up that receiver and God's going to take you seriously and you're going to get through to Him. All of us know. So there's a certain personality where we find ourselves in that place. We know where our deliverance lies. We know who our deliverer is. And yet in the activity of our mind, we will go to the place that I have no right of deliverance in and of myself. And yet the psalmist reminds us that the God that we cry to deliverance for is a God who is a forgiving God. And we must never, ever lose our confidence in that fact and our appreciation for that fact. 
The Bible says in the New Testament, if we confess our sins, he, that is God, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's how great the sacrifice of Jesus is. And then you notice in verse 5, he said, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word I do, wait a second, hold on. Verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. I wait for the Lord. Do we sing a song that's something like that? Is that ringing a bell for you at all? I don't know what song it is, and I'm not asking for anyone to come up and do it right now. I just take all of the songs we sing and I just merge them all together and whatever comes out of my mouth, I consider that a a better song than any (laughs) separation. I love the songs that come out of the Word. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in His Word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. And so here He is. He follows his prayer. He's quick to pray, but then he follows his prayer with a spirit of faith. And he, and he uh, allows the Lord to give him a spirit of anticipation concerning his prayer. So he takes some promise from God's Word that applies to his situation, and then he prays that to the Lord, and then he says, I'm going to wait for the answer to that prayer. It's wonderful to pray the promises of the Word of God, to say what promise is a promise of God for a person in my circumstance. I'm going to pray that, and I know that the God who cannot lie, not the God who will not lie, it's stronger than that, the God who cannot lie is going to keep that promise to me. And now this uh, uh, waiting for it and and taking and, and waiting with an anticipation, God is going to answer my prayer. And he uses the imagery here in his beautiful imagery of waiting for the Lord's answer to his prayer more than those who watch for the morning. And he's talking about the night shift as guards of the city who are ready to go off of their work shift at 6 a.m. when the new guards come in and when you've worked from whatever till 6 in the morning, you're looking with great expectation for the next shift to come on so you can grab a bite to eat and go get some sleep. So beautiful poetic language of the anticipation of God's answer to his prayers. And why can he have that anticipation? Is because he knows that God will keep his promises. Someone has estimated that uh, in, uh, uh, concerning counting the, all of the promises in the Bible, and they came up that the number of it exceeds uh, 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 3,500. I don't know the last time you counted, just numerically, just counted a 3,500, but it's been a long time. But it would take you a long time to do that. And how long would it take to speak all of those 3,500 promises of God? So many promises of God to us in His Word. One for every conceivable situation that we're facing in our lives to find the one that matches our circumstances and then hold on to that promise because God is going to be faithful to keep His promises. And He knows that, and now He wants to encourage Israel in that same vein. Oh, Israel, 
hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy. He says to them, mercy is coming. Keep on trusting the Lord. Mercy is coming. The circumstance that you find yourself in tonight, drowning in that circumstance. Maybe it's brought you to church tonight. The psalmist tells you, by the Spirit of God, hope is coming. Hold on to that hope. Because, or hold on to the hope because mercy is coming. You may just be in doubt in terms of I'm, one minute I'm going to make it, one minute I'm not going to make it, one minute I'm going to make it, one minute I'm not going to make it. He understands all about that and says, hope in the Lord. God's answer to prayer and his promises is coming. Mercy is coming and with him is abundant redemption. He shall redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. I think probably the ultimate uh, deliverance in human history is one uh, that is coming. It's called the rapture of the church. I cannot wait, by the way, and uh, where we will be delivered from every single trial in this world. In an instant, a moment, a twinkling of an eye, the time that it takes that light to reflect off of the human eye, that's how fast we'll go from being in somewhere on this earth and then face to face with the Lord. And all of the problems will go away. And that's a promise that the Lord is coming back to receive us unto himself. I like Thomas Ice. I'll never forget it. We were watching that a prophecy uh, update series, streaming it from Costa Mesa onto the screen here. And Thomas Ice, who is one of kind of the great speakers on end times, he was um, uh, chosen to speak on the rapture, and he began his night that night in his wonderful southern accent. You know, accents are fabulous because you can say nothing, and it'll sound fabulous with an accent. I'm just missing an accent. That's all I'm missing, really. But he has this wonderful southern accent, and he said, What problem do you have in your life tonight? that won't be solved by the rapture. I tell you, I laughed inside. I laughed inside. They will all be solved. And so ultimate um, fulfillment of all of this will be that complete redemption from our iniquities when Jesus comes and he takes uh, us to himself. Hmm. <laughs> Decisions, decisions. Now, don't help me with my decision, because I know what you want me to do. We'll stop there tonight, and I'll tell you why. Psalm 131 is one of my favorites, and I don't want to rush through it. But I don't want to rush through the Lord's Supper either tonight. And so we'll stop and we'll pick it up in Psalm 131 uh, next Sunday if the